Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. Pups podcast. As you know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog training and dog behavioral issues. And today's episode is about dog breeds. And we started thinking about dog breeds after our conversation with Aaron in our last episode about enrichment. Uh, As you know, enrichment is about providing species appropriate activities for our dogs in terms of their mental, physical, and emotional welfare. They've been bred for many, many years for specific activities, and it's our understanding that the more that we can provide them activities that kind of mimic some of those instinctual tendencies is a way to keep them healthier and potentially happier. Yeah, it is really important, and it's actually something that I've really started diving into deeper only recently, and really because of our guests book that I found to be really eye-opening. We all know that breeds have different tendencies and have been bred for many years, for millennia, for different purposes, but still we look at our dogs as pets and more rarely we see them as a product of a millennia of purpose-specific breeding and task completion. So knowing what the tendencies of each breed are can allow us to be less surprised (laughs) and to know what to expect from our dogs as pets. So when you say the word pets, what does that conjure up in your mind when we view our dogs as pets? What does that mean? It means that they are attached to a leash whenever we walk out and about. Pretty much we control everything in their life. We control where they sleep. We control what they eat. We control what activities they have the chance to do. It's an environment that is very much controlled. Obviously, our society and the way we live has changed. So we can't just let dogs run on the streets because now they will get hit by a car. But before they were able to have all this freedom and live in their own groups and societies of dogs and then also live as companions who had jobs, whether it's on the field or working with animals or even just being companions, depending on what we wanted them to be. Yeah. So one thing I think I'm hearing from you is that we had 
all these dogs and we domesticated them and we gave them very specific jobs that they got very good at or we bred them to be very good at them. And then suddenly the culture shifted and they became not things that could help us work, but things that help us kind of live our life and enjoy our life more. And largely, we don't provide them a lot of the things that they were kind of bred to do. And now they're kind of living these lives according to how we want to live it. Yeah. And our guest, she gives it a really great summary by saying that our dogs became unemployed. Mm. So they no longer have a job. Their job is to be companions regardless of genetic predisposition and natural history and tendencies. So I had a question for you. A lot of people say that if you encounter a puppy early enough, then you can train them as you want them to be. Uh, do you notice any difference between breeds, even though they might be the same age? Yeah, absolutely. Even just through our own experience fostering dogs, do you remember when we brought the healer puppy into our house? Right. So we fostered a healer and he was about five months of age. And yeah, we knew that herding dogs have a tendency to nip at ankles and calves and um, your butt, your <laughs> lower part of your body. But it wasn't until we lived with that dog when we were like, wow, this really is true. Like this dog has a tendency to nip at ankles more than any other dog that mm -hmm. we fostered and have lived with us. And I definitely see this with barking or with prey drive or with the desire to chill more and not be as active. So I do find correlations between breeds and tendencies that I see in puppies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of those moments where your knowledge of what's going on is so important, right? Because if you know that there are a certain breed that is more tending to nip and herd, then you can kind of see, oh, this is something that they are bred to do. And this is just an outlet for all those millennia of them practicing those behaviors, as opposed to, oh, this dog is misbehaving. This dog is being bad. This dog is being mean. This dog is being crazy. Yeah, it's definitely hard. It's not easy to have a dog who you're afraid to walk by in your own home because you know that they will want to nip you. And that's why, you know, looking at enrichment and looking at training and having a plan for action so that the dog has appropriate outlets. For example, um, for that dog, a flirt pole was a really good tool. A flirt pole it looks like a giant cat toy. It's something that moves so the dog can chase it. And oftentimes I would just walk around dragging a flirt pole behind me so that the dog can focus on biting on that instead of me. And maybe for some people, this may sound excessive and we just want to have our normal life and walk around like normal people. But sometimes we need to adjust and just add on something that is going to help us through this period. And, you know, things always change and shift. Obviously, as dogs grow, we see changing their behaviors too and the more that they can play and socialize as well definitely a decrease in those behaviors yeah our guest um she had a really good example in the book you know let's say if you like being a homebody you're an introvert 
and you meet someone that is very extroverted, likes to be very social, you know, maybe there's a spark and so there's an interest, but I think you have to at least go in and not to say these kinds of relationships can't work, but you also have to know going in that there's certain changes and modifications to at least your lifestyle that you have to make to make this connection work. And just assuming that the love will just carry us through these kind of big differences can be a little naive, I would say. And I would say the same goes for our dogs. Yeah, I agree. So great. So let me introduce our guest today. Our guest today is Kim Brophy, CDBC, CPDTKA, FDM, is an applied ethologist and owner of the Dog Door Behavior Center in Asheville, North Carolina. Kim's commitment to family dog mediation has been recognized internationally, awarded the APDT Outstanding Trainer of the Year in 2009, and the Best Dog Trainer of WNC seven years in a row. She is a member of the International Society of Applied Ethology and the Association of Professional Dog Trainers and a certified member and past board member of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. Kim Brophy's dog legs model of comprehensive canine science has been endorsed by prominent canine scientists such as Raymond Koppinger and embraced by reputable dog trainers worldwide. From her applied ethology content in Michael Shikashio's Aggression in Dogs Master Course to her highly anticipated market disrupting applied ethology and family dog mediation course, Kim's work is a celebrated contribution to the field. Her groundbreaking book, Meet Your Dog, TED Talk, and Beyond the Operant Collaborative have made profound waves and became favorites among both dog professionals and the public. Kim continues to build bridges and invites others to contribute to a new conversation about dogs, one that challenges us to redefine how we perceive, talk about, and treat our canine companions as a society. So without further ado, introducing Kim Brophy to the podcast. We saw that your book, Meet Your Dog, The Game-Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behavior, was published in 2018. I'm sure you wrote it a couple of years before that. So you just give us a sense of what was the state of our culture's understanding of dogs then? What was the state of dog training then? And then more importantly, what was the catalyzing event or moment that propelled you to write this book? Yeah, those are um, all great questions. I'll try to put it in as much of a little nutshell as I can in the interest of time. But um, funny enough, I actually started writing the book almost 10 years before it was published. So um, what was the catalyst initially for thinking, oh my gosh, a book like this needs to be written, was a series of life events looking like my son starting school. So he was like, you know, four or five years old, just starting preschool. And immediately, of course, you see the issues with like the public school education system and like the square peg in the round hole for our kids. Right. And so I started doing all this research and learned about nature deficit disorders. It relates to kids. And I had been kind of saturated in the dog world, just like by the book, right? Like how you train dogs. These are the things that everyone's approving of at the moment. And there was definitely some more inclusion of ethology and stuff at the time, but a lot of it was um, really centered around just learning theory as kind of the primary focus and the lens. And there was a lot of kind of dismissing of how genetics fit with an environment or they don't. So it was almost like what happened to my son being this catalyst for me researching about what's happening to humans 
kind of gave me permission to be like, you know what, I'm going to go back into the dog deal and dig in, you know, about this whole concept of basically like the modern world and how that's working for our kids or our dogs, or it's not based on what their natures are, the way that they've been designed to be for thousands of years, and then the sudden change in the environment now. So long story short, that sent me into a researching just frenzy for like a few years. And I was cataloging all the research that I was finding into these 10 different kinds of weird um, subgroup topics. And it wasn't quite legs yet. It wasn't boiled down into that small of a framework yet. It was still, um, you know, a much more complicated, uh, messy body of research that I was finding. But long story short, very long story short, um, it got boiled down into the legs as kind of the model. And then I felt like, okay, now I'm ready to try to put all of this together and see if I can find a publisher. But um, by the time I was looking for a publisher, it was probably still 2000 and maybe 2012, 2013. So it really was, you know, it's 10 years ago from, from now that I started that process. And so um, I think one of the things that, that catalyzed my, my sense of responsibility to write it rather than just, oh, this is important information. It would be good for people to have it was getting more involved in my local shelter here. Um, as a behavior consultant and realizing how many dogs were losing their lives because they were demonstrating behaviors that we bred them to do. Mm. And I was like, that's just criminal. It's so unfair to be breeding something that we know darn well, if we bother to take the time to look back at the history and everything was specifically designed and fine tuned to express these behaviors that now we're going to condemn them for and like pathologize those. Same right. behaviors. It, it just seemed so wrong. And I was like, the world needs to know this. And so I set about trying to integrate it and write the book. Yeah. Well, I discovered you um, from my Shikashio's course. I was uh, taking the chapter on ethology and it was funny because I was working with a toy breed, a little chihuahua, and literally like everything that was on the screen, like the resource guarding, the territorial aggression, protective aggression, stranger directed aggression, fear aggression, were yeah. all the issues that my clients were dealing with and we were working through. And I literally had to like take a screenshot and be like look <laughs> this is like normal for toy breeds you guys it's not you know it's not the end of the world we can figure right. it out but you're not alone out there and I think that oftentimes taking the breed into consideration and the dog's natural history and becoming more aware of their tendencies can really take such a burden off of our shoulders because we're like, oh, wow, this makes more sense. You know, my dog is not like insane and crazy. That's <laughs> what she was bred to do or has done through the ages. And it's yeah. what I'm seeing today. <laughs> yeah, no, completely. And that was a big reason why I felt like, you know, aside from the more like acute severe consequence of a dog being abandoned or euthanized for their behavior. Think of how many families are thinking, what is wrong with my dog? He's crazy. Or how many of us are thinking, I must be a horrible trainer because I can't change this behavior instead of going, oh, right, right, right. Like decades, centuries, generations of reinforcement history. That's a lot to work up against, you know, totally. it's mm -hmm. so humbling. And I, like you said, it's a relief. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think sometimes Labeling something as insane or crazy is just the easy answer, right? Because it's just, it just provides 
a way for our minds to understand a certain situation other, yeah. rather than the possibility that could be infinitely other reasons. But <laughs> it's so easy for us to label people, circumstances or whatever, just insane or crazy, just for our own mental kind of like peace. It's, it's a little weird. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think that's that's one of the big kinds of um, cultural messages that I am working to unravel and expose as untrue. Not that anyone ever meant to mislead us as a culture, but I think that we've had this idea that a pet dog mm -hmm. is just a cute, fuzzy, doting little minion that should be doing everything that you want them to do. And they like everybody and everything, and they don't have any stress and they never act aggressive and that that's normal and that right. everything else is abnormal. And we're still as a culture operating from that model. Well, let's talk about that. You have said, you know, we have forgotten that dogs are animals. So could you unpack that statement for us? What was the deeper meaning you were trying to convey? about us as people or about our pet culture more broadly? Yeah, I think it's funny. I think dogs are kind of in this weird like black hole vortex between nature and then what we see as this apart from nature human world, mm -hmm. right? Like we've created this huge psychological imagined divide between our species and all the other species as if we study the world, but we are apart from it. We're above it. We're like the masters of it somehow. And we've controlled it. And we've been able to actually do an, an unbelievable number of things in the time you know that human beings have been on the planet. And so it's understandable how people kind of can get confused about that and feel like there's this huge line of distinction where there really isn't one. We kind of brought our pet dogs along with us in this more modern uh, perception of dogs as pets in that we think of them as literally here for us. We don't mm. think of them or ourselves as subject to the natural laws that dictate every other species on the planet. It's almost like, well, but we're humans and we're dogs. So those rules don't apply to us. Some rule like um, survival of the fittest, which because of things like modern medicine and all of our protections of culture and all of this, we've been able to not feel the effects of something like survival of the fittest as acutely as our ancestors did not that long ago, right. even a hundred years ago, the average lifespan was 40, you mm -hmm. know? And, and so we, we're looking at a world that is not the way the world has been for, you know, thousands, millions of years. We're looking at a world through our kind of narrow modern lens and, and we, are under this kind of illusion that we're apart from it. And so it feels like, yeah, we can control everything because we're humans mm -hmm. and, and we've got that kind of idea in our mind. So I think, yeah, we've just brought dogs along almost like they're something that was created for us. We've turned them into products mm -hmm. more than we have turned them um, or understood them to be individual sentient beings that are wrestling with all the same kind of biological, evolutionary, natural phenomenon and effects that all the other species on the planet are. I think we forget that we are animals too, right? We and do. there's a lot of pathology out there because we are being forced to live in a certain culture and a certain environment. And people are getting really sick because there's an incongruency there. Oh, absolutely. And I love books like Saving Our, Our Children, for, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, because Richard Louvre really talks about that phenomenon and he puts it in a historical perspective so that we can appreciate kind of what's happened. But, you know, if you think of like the rise in human mental health problems in the last decades, there are evolutionary logical reasons for that. You know, yeah. the, the ways that we feel, whether it's from loneliness or stress or depression 
or um, frustration or what have you, uh, all of the cultural phenomenon that we spend all this time trying to analyze, like, why does that happen? Usually there are ethological or evolutionary explanations if we look at things through that framework, but we as a culture have been kind of reluctant to do that, particularly in the United States. Mm. Yeah, and oftentimes we see these marketing uh, messages, right? It's like, it's what produces the culture that we believe that we need this product or that this dog needs to be looking a certain way, or there will be this other magical product that is all of a sudden going to stop any undeserved behaviors <laughs> that we ever see from our dogs. And mm -hmm. we now have these expectations that there is always some magic product out mm. there that is going to instantly stop anything that we're feeling or experiencing that's unpleasant and create a resolution for us and mm -hmm. unfortunately that's not the reality <laughs> wait so if i get that like really nice lamborghini my life problems are not going to go away that's <laughs> right but marketing definitely tries to convince us of that and, and you're right so it's weird because it's almost like the dog training industry has rallied around the new marketing models uh-huh and so they're competing with all this really misleading false messaging and same with the products or services or whatever like i will wave my magic little wand yeah. and then everything will be perfect you can have the dog of your dreams that will obey your every command like mm -hmm. It's ridiculous that we keep perpetuating that stuff because it is not scientific and logical. You know, like I was reading reviews of your book. So many people said everyone should read this book before getting a dog. And I'm sure that's something that was a really big goal for you. But I'm sure you know that there are still a lot of dog parents out there that, hey, I'm just going to go to the rescue. And the one that really, you know, catches my eye is the one that I, I want to take home. And we're going to have the perfect family photo. And they're imagining like the Christmas card and everything like that. So, <laughs> How much do you think that has changed since you've written this book in your own experience, uh, at least compared to your expectations? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it, it's when I set out to to write the book, I thought to myself, this is a decade long endeavor at the very least. Like, I'll be lucky to see anything shift in the culture in my lifetime, much less soon, you know? And so the fact that I've even seen the ripples occur her at all since the publication of the book and then the course being out, the full course, has been really remarkable. I think at this point, we haven't really made tons of cultural substantial changes yet. I think the dominant message is still, it's a product, it'll be what you want it to be, you can, you know, um, it, it's just like shopping for a dog and then you take it to a professional to fix it when it breaks. Like, I think that's still the dominant message, but I do think the, the door that's been kicked open is that professionals, like I have about 700, 800 students now worldwide of the full family dog mediation course. And those professionals are in all of their own communities creating that cultural change in the expectations within the people who live there by sharing this better information, by sharing mm. it within their circles on social media and things like that and changing the expectations and the perceptions of those that they work with. And it's, it's having an effect. It's just we're at the very beginning of what we hope mm. is a massive paradigm shift, mm. but um, I don't think we're at all there yet. What, was that a hard transition for you? I'm sure, you know, a book that's 10 years in the making, I'm sure, you know, at the hardest points of you writing that book, you're like, once I get to that finish line, I'm going to change the culture. Things are going to like change drastically in the way that I see it. 
some people might view it that way. And even little changes that you're currently making might be a massive disappointment for mm-hmm. some people that are in your position. How did you, did you have that mindset going in? Did you have to make some adjustment into your light being brought into the world? Like how, how was that transition for you? Actually, for me, it's been pleasantly surprising. Um, frankly, I ran into nothing but walls for so long within the industry. Uh, professionals being frankly, n- not receptive to hearing any of the content, anything outside of what was kind of the approved um, status quo uh, way of thinking about an approaching behavior, which is largely the behavior is a model only is, is what's been the dominant model and which of course is completely correct. It's just that it's not the complete story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've run into so much resistance that frankly, I was expecting a lot more resistance than Mm -hmm. I've gotten. So I've been pleasantly surprised Mm -hmm. that it's been embraced. Anyone who's really taken the time to understand the material has had nothing but good things to say. So Mm -hmm. I haven't had any actual criticisms of the content of the book at all. Mm -hmm. So the the criticisms that might be like on the reviews or things like, I knew this already. And I'm like, well, good for you. You're one of the really smart people. You knew all the things (laughs) in the book, congratulations. Or, you know, just didn't learn anything new or... um, but really most of them are, I've been working with dogs for 20 years and this still blew my mind and fill, filled in all kinds of blanks for me. And same with the course content, just because it's so interdisciplinary yeah. and people are introduced to things that have not been part of the mainstream conversation and, and they're just embracing it and running with it. I'm having so much fun watching the students take the content implement it in their kind of specialized work, things that I might not necessarily do at all. And then they're making their own discoveries about how that content is changing lives as it's applied. So mm. it's, it's becoming its own kind of organic collective of pros at this point. Yeah, I think that with social media, and I definitely have um, surrounded myself or my social media is self-selecting by people that I want to see content from. And to me, it seems like there is the movement of, you know, increase of enrichment, like using longer leashes, really um, speaking up for letting the dog sniff. So I can see how, you know, going back to like looking at their genetic predispositions and working with that aspect is really in alignment with this newer movement of younger trainers who are really outspoken on social media advocating for their dogs and their clients and that is starting to cause more ripple effect out there yeah I, yeah I completely agree and and I've seen so much happen just in the last year or two I also think COVID has had something to do with it I think COVID broke a lot of our habitual ways of living behaving interacting with others interacting with other pros operating mm. our businesses and it was such a leveling you know, experience that it, it did open certain doors as it closed others. Mm. And I do feel like the international community of dog pros has connected in a way that I haven't seen before. Um, and I, I've just, I had no idea that there were so many individuals that were already thinking about this kind of stuff. Like it wasn't to them, like that all of it was new. It was almost like I was able to substantiate what they were already feeling Mm. and give it more validity, which made them feel like I'm not crazy. This is what I've been thinking and feeling too, you know? So it's, (laughs) it's been neat to connect with all that. And I think a lot of people have different things to bring to that table and it's different kind of content that's being shared instead of just the kind of competitive I'm right, you're wrong, you know, atmosphere that unfortunately has been characterizing the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you've experienced it too, because Tanya did as well. It's just dog trainers in particular just got that tidal wave of 
dogs being sent to them and dog parents reaching out for help because so many obviously dogs and puppies got adopted during that time and uh, it was uh, such a big transition for a lot of them and it had to make them think a little deeper because they were just flooded with new clients yeah yeah absolutely and and i think a lot of the problems were things that couldn't be understood without doing a deeper dive into mm. behavior than just the behavior as a model was providing yeah yeah i think that oftentimes when we work with things like you know fears anxieties and other whether it's a breed related types of issues it's hard to really think about it just in terms of standard obedience training we really gotta get more creative with it and that is kind of pushing us to keep searching for alternative uh, methods or ideas or things that we can incorporate and kind of start to make that a part of what we do even for some of the more um, streamlined cases as well yeah, yeah, absolutely. If nothing else, it can complement, you know, the regular work that we're doing in our behavior cases, it, because again, the, the behavioral principles um, of learning theory and applied behavior analysis are central to all of the work that we do. But I think that without appreciating the kind of scope of the natural framework in which those mechanisms live, like why they are the way they are in the first place, why animals learn the way that they do, um, then we're bound to miss some critical uh, variables in our mathematical equations of trying mm -hmm. to help them out. And we'll be back right after this break. Are you looking for exceptional veterinary care for your cat or dog? Good Heart Animal Health Center is here for all your pet's needs. Their happy, helpful team provides full-service care for all stages of your pet's life. They have separate areas for dogs and cats, helping to create low-stress checkups for pets and their people. Every new client receives a free pet name tag and bottle of wine as a thank you for giving them a try. Goodhart has two locations in Denver, at Broadway and Alameda, and now open in Cherry Creek. For more information, visit goodhart.vet. Now back to the episode. So let, let's talk a little bit about the nitty gritty here. So obviously in your book, you, you have a wide variety of different breeds and breed groups that you talk about and their tendencies, but let's just break it down like this. So if a close friend or a colleague and a family member were to consult you to help them choose a breed of dog that would optimally fit their personality and lifestyle, let's say it's your, their first dog, for example, what would be the first, some of the first questions you would ask them to begin the process of helping them narrow down their options? Yeah, I usually start just with a really open invitation for the person to tell me, because we offer this service at my business. So sometimes we have some clients that don't have a dog yet that are coming in and asking for a consultation for that reason. Um, and I ask them, what's their vision? Like, what's your fantasy? If you like, if you could just think of all the things that you want in this relationship, what you want to be able to do with your dog, um, what is your lifestyle like? Do you have a lot of people over? Do you hang out with a lot of other people and their dogs? Are you outside a lot? Are you more kind of at home and sedentary? I look at the lifestyle issue as the environment because this piece that tends to be the deal breaker is the key not fitting the lock or that square peg in a round hole. So the first thing I have to figure out is what kind of lock are we talking about before I can tell you what kind of key I think might fit in there, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm not gonna change the person 
I could change their expectations maybe. Maybe all their expectations are a little unreasonable and they have a lot of really contradicting expectations, you know, um, and are just things that aren't going to work out. And so it, what's cool is that if you start with giving the person permission to just confess without judgment what those expectations are and what, what that lifestyle is like, um, get a sense of whether that's something that is uh, static and likely to be consistent or whether it's something that's kind of temporary. Like right now I'm a college student and I hike all the time because my mm. classes are, you know, I only have one or two a day. And, um, but then they're a year away from graduation. So if they're planning on going into the medical field as soon as they graduate college and then they're gonna be working three 12 hour shifts a week, that might change what I'm gonna recommend for them too is they have whatever type of dog hitting social maturity right when they're starting to be gone for 12 hours at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just really that open-ended, um, you know, dialogue where they're getting that permission. And then, um, depending on the person, of course, that, that advice can go in a number of different directions, usually for first time dog owners, things like the gun dog group, um, or a, the toy group even can be the best fit, not for all, but for many in that a lot of folks are just wanting the kind of lovey dovey, you know, human-centric, um, affectionate, playful, biddable, um, you know, nothing too scary <laughs> to have to kind of, uh, you know, figure out how to navigate for, for a first-time dog owner, um, things that are going to be a little bit more push-button. So, you know, we mm. get a lot of recommendations for things along the lines of Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, but of course I worry about the health problems and breeds like that too. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the best breeds for first-time dog families mm-hmm. are also really overbred. So there is a little bit of a complicating issue there. Mm-hmm. What are a few example, uh, examples of the gun dog breed category? So like setters, retrievers, pointers, spaniels, um, all of them. So yeah, and you know, again, depending on kind of what they're doing. And like, if I have a client who looks like they would like a gun dog based on all the answers to their questions in the conversation, but they are not very active. They have a fence jarred. They might take the dog on a walk or two a day. They have another dog in the home, um, but they're not exactly like super active out there, you know, running miles a day or anything like that. Then I might suggest say an English lab. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a little bit more on the couch potato end of the spectrum for the gun dogs or a clumber spaniel or something. And what kind of dogs would be at the other end of that? So let's say, you know, early thirties living in Colorado, always out on the trail. Like what are the best dogs uh, for, for, for those activities? Yeah, I think a lot of the more active gun dogs, which is most of the gun dogs, honestly, and then a lot of the herding dogs. Um, Herding dogs can be awesome for people that are looking for that adventuring wingman, as long as the person is aware of the kinds of kryptonite that herding dogs are going to get presented with out there. Like there goes a bicycle, I think Mm. I'll nip it at the tires, you know, Um, (laughs) stuff like that. So as long as you're kind of managing and and training to have some good dialogues and agreements in place for those situations, herding dogs can be great adventuring sidekicks. Mm. So have you started conversations with rescues? Because I'm sure, you know, these kind of questionnaires, let's say, or these kinds of what is your vision might be good in that certain dogs might not be returned once they get adopted, but it also might kind of gum up the initial adoption process. So Mm -hmm. are they receptive to kind of your message or are they a little hesitant? Like what has been their reception? 
Yeah, so this is really an interesting conversation right now with the sheltering industry the way that it is because, um, so years ago, again, I was working with my local shelter and that was part of the inspiration for this. So we designed and implemented a version of this program at our local shelter um, and it was, it was definitely helpful to see how the um, retention rate was affected, right? So that people were making the right choice on the front end more often than they had been previously. But one of the things that I knew going into the uh, introduction or the offering of this program for shelters is that we are going to meet our problem head on and there's no getting around it, right? So we can play long game or we can play the short game. There's a trend in the sheltering world right now towards not putting any breed on the dog's kennel card or file, right? So if we don't label them any kind of breed, because we do mislabel them a lot, right? Mm -hmm. We know that's a massive problem is that, you know, if you're just looking at a dog visually, the likelihood of it getting mislabeled is really high. So that's a problem. So either offering genetic testing or having like the app that I have, the dog key, that software program can be used to um, uh, be able to identify which breed group that dog fits into. Um, But without a tool like that, we do have too high of a margin for error to correctly implement the program because we could be saying, yeah, these are all the things the dog is, but we thought it was that and it's not that at all. We're not helping the person. But we're going to run into a problem in the short run of there might be, and I would argue that there are groups of dogs that uniformly are not meeting our expectations as a culture as much as some other groups. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an important long game conversation we're not going to be able to avoid having. It does make it a bit of a pickle on the front end. It's like if we keep breeding the daylights out of Jack Russell Terriers and we keep euthanizing Jack Russell Terriers for being cat killers, we've got an issue, right? Mm. So then we have to figure out do we need less terriers in the gene pool? Or is it more about educating people who love terriers about how to manage them around other small mammals? You know, mm-hmm. these are all things that I don't have the, the answers to yet. I know that I would expect that some people are going to say, well, I don't really want a dog that just fundamentally is going to be less likely to ever come when called. Mm-hmm. So a sight hound, a scent hound, or a natural dog might all be examples of breeds that I am not going to be happy with because I want to be able to take this dog off leash wherever I go and know that it is going to follow my commands. So, you know, whether or not that's something that we decide, well, so maybe there are some of those breeds that we have maintained because of our romantic love of them that won't be as popular if people understand what they're getting into, or will they just change their practices and have different environmental provisions where the dog can safely be off leash. And they no longer thinking that if they unhook the dog in the middle of the trail, that the dog will actually stay with them. If a deer runs across their path or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's a real issue. I think the, the program is needed in sheltering. I think the public needs to have a better idea of what they're getting. If I went to a used car, you know, shop and I was trying to figure out what kind of car was going to fit my lifestyle. I need to be able to describe what my needs and expectations are. Um, and so that way I don't end up driving an 18 wheeler home just because I thought it looked cool <laughs> <laughs> you know, without a CDL, you know, where I'm going to run over someone, you know, the day yeah. the first that I have it because I don't know how to drive it. Right. And there are some dogs that are harder to drive than others, you mm-hmm. know, 
And I think we don't talk a lot about that. And then the person gets it and they go to a pro and they're like, what's wrong with it? It's like, well, nothing. It's exactly what it was designed to be. So I wish someone had told you because then, you know, you might not be in the position that you're in now where you're feeling exasperated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely found out the hard way uh, with our hunting dog that he cannot be off leash on hikes when deer runs by because we did lose our dog for two hours in the mountain <laughs> this oh, no. last summer. So uh, no more off leash hikes for our guy. <laughs> yeah. But, but another uh, story that I have that really highlighted the difference in dog breeds was that I was working with this uh, Pyrenees puppy and so far when I've worked on Rico training you know puppies are just so enthusiastic they come running and I have a bunch of games there's so much fun running back and forth and with this Pyrenees puppy I just do the exact same thing and he just looks at me like this look And then he's like, "Mm, do I, should I do this? I don't know. I'm not sure. And then I'm like prompting, prompting. And then you start to see slowly one foot in front of the other. He's like moving towards me. And I was like, um, and then I was like, let me, let me Google what's going on here. And then everything that was written about the breed was relevant to this dog. So it's like, sometimes I, as a trainer, also need to be reminded to really kind of check in with the breed and who I'm working with to just set up the expectation for myself and for my clients too. But yeah, it's just so funny how they differ. They're almost different subspecies. You know, like when you really think about that, the difference between teaching a golden retriever a recall and a Pyrenees is (laughs) night and day. I have a Pyrenees mix and it, it was the most humbling, amazing experience raising her because everything was different. Yeah. And it still is like she spends maybe four hours a day just sitting in the backyard, looking over her domain, Mm. occasionally barking and then running a little lap, you know, the perimeter of the yard, then coming back and sitting on the hill. And as my husband would tell you at three o'clock in the morning last night, when he let the little one out to go to the bathroom and the big one decided to go too. He did not come when night. And like what I did, because he comes up and he's like, I can't get her in the house, you know? And I know better than to even think if she's like full on Zen mode in the middle of the yard at three in the morning, smelling that lovely night air, doing what Pyrenees were developed to do, right? Because the nighttime, because they're um uh they're crepuscular. So like they're active in the the evenings and like dusk and dawn, and then through through the nighttime when predators would be active. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. literally right now she's asleep under this desk. She doesn't move for eight hours a day every day. Mm-hmm. She doesn't literally get up. And then all of a sudden she has her active periods and she's really into the zone, like genetically even reinforced for the behaviors that she's doing. So I just marched out there. I walked right up to her and I said, get in the house. And she's like, okay. (laughs) But like, you you have to shift your expectations. You have Uh to handle your approach to the whole thing differently. Um, And I think your, your story is such a good one because I think so many Pyrenees are similar breeds that get so popular because they're so cute. People take them home, they put them in the wrong environments, they have all kinds of problems as a result of that habitat issue mm-hmm. and all the expectations around that. And then the dog ends up on Prozac and with a veterinary behaviorist, even though there was really nothing ever wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You know, not to say that it's bad that we give dogs medication or that we get them professional help, but I think it's so avoidable. I think that the cultural education around dogs just has to change. We've got to level up. It, it 
it just makes so much sense that you made the leap between your child and, and dogs for sure. Just hearing you talk for sure. Um, but let's talk about dog training. You guys are dog trainers. So you make the pretty big statement in your book that dog training is a misnomer. Could you outline for us what you meant by that statement and perhaps the mindset shift you were hoping to make by um, saying it? I think this is why we're introducing the concept of family dog mediation, because we feel like it more accurately describes our job of sitting between two parties, two different species, and then helping them get on the same page under a contract of agreements. And so I ask both parties to flex in that process, both the human end and the dog end to make compromises that they're able to make so that they can live together. The reason I think dog training is kind of a misnomer and particularly even more so dog obedience training is that it, it kind of perpetuates subconsciously this idea and expectation that you take it to a professional, they train it, they program it, and then you get it back and mm. it's trained now. So you can check all the boxes and it knows all the things and that the dog's participation, if you will, or lack thereof in that dialogue conversation or contract doesn't matter because you trained them. So they are supposed, it's almost this robotic kind of perception that we have with training that like, it's not education, it's not explaining, it's not helping them figure out what'll work better to have their needs met. It's like compliance. And, and so the debate has been in the industry, not so much about whether that whole approach of, I have all these behavior problems. I have all these behavior goals. You trainer, you'd need to check all the boxes and accomplish it. Make it do all the things I want. We haven't challenged the narrative of that, which needs to be challenged. Instead, we just argue about which method is best to get there. Mm-hmm. And I, my whole case has been take a few steps back and look at the reasonableness or not of what we're setting out about to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because I think so much we're just kind of routinely beating our head against a wall along with the client as we try to employ training, which sure you can teach them all sorts of things. Changing behavior is actually relatively easy. It's just that, did we get to the root of the problem underneath it in the first place? Did we solve the actual problem or are we just gonna end up playing whack-a-mole because we changed one behavior only for that frustration or that unmet need to emerge someplace else? Mm. Yeah, we had had this conversation with um a parent coach who was on our podcast and it was pretty similar situation, you know, that idea of, Hey, I bring my uh, kid to, you know, your um, lesson or therapy session. And then, you know, we expect them, we expect to see a change where the reality is that we need to um, involve the parents and the home environment and the teachers and everyone else who lives with this child so that everyone is on the same page and doing the same thing. So we can really see progress. And yeah, in the dog training field, we, the board and train obviously is a really great example because a lot of people expect Mm -hmm. that I'm going to send my dog away for a board and train and um, I'm going to get like this. uh, Yeah. Perfect dog. Yeah compliant dog that is going to do everything and yeah maybe some it works out for some dogs but I've had a lot of clients who said their dog to board and train and the dog came back only knowing how to sit right (laughs) (laughs) yeah you get both ends of the spectrum and I would say a successful board and train program often will return a highly compliant robot back to the clients but now I'm concerned about that dog's welfare right so if the dog has been in a environment, like let's say a traditional kennel board and train environment, and they have been, a, you know, 
arguably traumatized by the fact that they didn't know where they were. And they then have kind of, it's, it's almost like they're, they're a captive of, of this person who has all this power of giving them access to things or not, who brings them out, offers them, you know, social opportunities, offers them food resources, offers them play resources, et cetera. But it, you know, in more of the board and trains than not are using methods that are going to punish the wrong choices in the dogs pretty intensively, then the dog may come back suppressing all kinds of behaviors and inhibiting mm. all kinds of behaviors and complying out of fear. And so it looks so impressive. That's one of the dangers of some of the methods that we have in the industry is that they can be really impressive, but completely at the cost of that animal's welfare. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that doesn't get talked about enough either. You know, the culture, I don't think anyone sets out to ever do anything to their dog that would compromise their welfare, but they're not necessarily aware when that's at risk. Mm. Yeah. And it really depends on what the issues are, right? If like the harder the dog is, the more people will be like, well, I don't care. I just want this to stop and yeah. I am willing to just do whatever it will make it stop. So it really, you know, to those dogs, who are not met with the patience that they need and the right approach or yeah, it's just very unfortunate. It um, is. And I, and I do feel bad for the people in those situations too, because mm -hmm. again, what if they just didn't know better? What if there was yeah. no way for them to know what they were getting into and they've gotten in over their head right. and they don't want to rehome the dog. I realize that humans have their limitations and their breaking points too. So it's not that I think that the human half of the equation should just be a martyr in the interest of their dog's welfare either. It's really complicated. Yeah, that's why it sounds like what you are aiming for and what we are aiming for, which is just this um, team team effort from professionals and people who live with the animal and provide the environment to team up together, uh, advocating for and working together for the welfare of this dog so that we can reach some of the goals that we have for what our lives with this dog want to look like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that spirit of collaboration is something that I'm really hopeful about. And I, I was probably, um, I felt it was a little, I ideal, uh, but that I was idealizing something that wasn't actually going to come to fruition in the past. And in the last couple of years, I feel like it might actually be possible. I'm just seeing a whole nother kind of spirit of, you know, working together that's happening um, instead of the kind of competitive, yucky, cruel, mm. stabbing um, tendencies that have been so dominant in the last few decades. Yeah. I can't imagine what the dog training, like in fighting was 10 years ago. I mean, it still seems pretty, high level right now, but by comparison, I'm sure it's a lot less. Yeah. It's, it's just this us versus them thing that doesn't stop where, you know, one person's always just delegitimizing someone else or one group is delegitimizing someone else. And I think we all need to be able to step back from our own biases in order to be able to learn from each other, even when things are different than how we look at them or do them. Yeah. And, and same for our political environment too. I mean, those right. are wise words for that, right? <laughs> Right. I know if only we could all grow up across the board just a little bit, it'd be so helpful. Right. And just try yeah. to get outside of our own egos a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, and I totally assume that, you know, you were coming from the dog training and um, maybe you might've applied some lessons to your uh, human relationships, but it looks like you took inspiration from your human relationship with your son to the dog training world. But I'm wondering, did you, 
in the course of writing this book or after it was published, did it change how you viewed some of your personal relationships or maybe the advice that you gave to some of your friends about their personal relationships? Did it change any of that for you? Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting transformative things about the content for me personally. And then I think for, um, for a lot of people who end up reading it um, and, and kind of seeing themselves in it in their personal relationships, you know, clearly the book is taking the whole concept of a relationship, even a romantic relationship right. and kind of using that as a parallel for compatibility and that whole concept. Um, when I started researching for the book, I was in a very unhealthy marriage and I didn't actually write the book until after the divorce. And so the research started through it. And of course, you know, you start seeing things, but by the time I wrote the book, I kind of had the perspective of a failed marriage already (laughs) and then finished the writing book as a writing the book as a single mom, you know, with young children bouncing all over me, processing the errors of my ways and how I had chased the wrong people or the wrong people had chased me and tried to have unsuccessful relationships with people who were just too different, who Mm. I loved dearly, Mm. but like, you know, here I am the biggest homebody, like recluse on the face of the planet. And that's my idea of like a great lifestyle is just like not going anywhere and being a hermit, you know, with my dogs. Um, and I had fallen for some people after the divorce that were just like these adventuring free Mm -hmm. spirits, you know, and that realization of like, well, it's not that there's anything wrong with that person. And it's not that there's anything wrong with me. We're just not compatible. We can still love each other, but being in a relationship sure as heck isn't going to work. Wow. Yeah. That, that 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 already is sounds like uh the title of your second book i mean that, that, no way. that I, would, I would read that <laughs> oh I'll, I'll i'll stay in my little lane over here with the dogs <laughs> yeah well i'm thinking as we start to near the end of our podcast um i would love for you to outline for our listeners what the main idea or what st- stands behind the leg legs when it comes to us um, looking at our dogs from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the it's, it's working in contrast to the it's all how you raise them kind of idea that's become really popular in our culture, which puts all the burden on the people to make it a perfect dog, right? And that's that kind of weight that we're trying to lift off of ourselves and our clients. Um, and so the reality of every animal, if we're going back to that original thing we talked about, about how dogs are animals too, um, all animals in nature have a phenotype, which is the interaction of all these parts of what you can kind of shorthand for the sake of simplicity, think of as legs. So they're learning. That's the, how you raise them part, right. Or whatever their experience and education is in life, whether that's intentional or not the environment that they found themselves in. So what is that external set of conditions, um, including their relationships, the other animals and people in their lives, your lifestyle schedule, stuff like that we were talking about before, the genetics that they bring to the table that they never asked for, remember, that either nature or we bred into them. So Mm -hmm. those genes, instincts, perceptions that they bring to the table from day one, and then the self, so the internal conditions for the animals. So their age, sex, health, um, personality, injury, disease. So anything that's kind of like their unique body as a self that they're bringing to the table, all of those elements are constantly interacting in real time to create the behavior that we're seeing. And so just remembering that we need to look under all four rocks when we're trying to understand something is really important. Wonderful. Amazing. Uh, so yeah, just to kind of wrap things up, how, how can people 
connect with you? How can people start a conversation with you? And how can people find some of the resources that you have online? Yeah, awesome. Um, so people can, uh, if you just Google Kim Brophy, there'll be a host of, you know, whether it's podcast episodes, um, you can find the link to my course there. Uh, it's a Thinkific course for anyone who is either a professional in any capacity, not necessarily a dog pro, or just really dedicated um, dog caretakers or families. We have a lot of folks in the course that aren't even professionals as well. Um, and they can find the TED Talk that I have there. Um, they can also find me on Facebook and I welcome conversations with people via Facebook Messenger if they just want to reach out and connect and talk about things. Uh, the first printing of the edition, uh, the first edition of the book is sold out, but it is in, in uh, the process of being reprinted right now. Congratulations. So, thank you. That's great. So it's a good problem to have, but unfortunately right now there's no stock unless you want to pay the hundred and something dollars that, you know, Amazon sellers are trying to, uh, get for the book, which is ridiculous. Wow. So wait for the second publishing of it. <laughs> we, we do have an e-version and we also have the audio book for folks that want it now. Um, and for anyone who's really interested in the course, we have a $400 off coupon with code evolve, just that word evolve um, until February 14th. So if there's a dog lover in your life and you want to gift that to yourself or someone else, you know, you can definitely take advantage of that. Great. Yeah, we'll uh, list all those in the show notes so people can have easy access to those resources. Wonderful. For sure. Wonderful. Thank you for your time. It's been so much fun talking to you about dogs and hearing your perspective about your experiences in the field as well. Yeah, the time just flew by for us, for sure. Yeah, me too. I know. It feels like it's only been 10 minutes. Thanks again <laughs> so much for having me. Just listen to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. And don't forget to visit familypups.com podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania DeMartini-Price, Unpredictable Aggression with Michael Shikashiel, Fearful Dogs with Debbie Jacobs, Puppy Socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more. You have just listened to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. And don't forget to visit familypups.com podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania DeMartini-Price, unpredictable aggression with Michael Shikashiel, fearful dogs with Debbie Jacobs, puppy socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more.